Gilligan's Island. Daytime soaps, General Hospital, Days of Our Lives. 48 Hours, Blue Bloods, I think Magnum P.I., The Brady Bunch. I think every one of these shows had one particular episode, the amnesia episode. You know, someone, Marsha, Gilligan, they hit their head, they forget who they are, and for the whole episode, they're trying to remember who they are, and when they remember who they are, they remember who they are. The episode is about they're losing their identity. And all of the cast is trying to help them to remember their identity. Well, it makes for great entertainment. But spiritually speaking, there's this thing out there called gospel amnesia. And what gospel amnesia is, is this very harmful condition Christians regularly deal with. It's it's when a Christian forgets who they are in Christ. It's when a Christian forgets what all God has done for them in the person of Jesus. When that happens, it's gospel amnesia, and it's not just kind of a condition. It's really dangerous. Because when you forget who you are in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you then go back to old addictions. And the greatest addiction that we all face as human beings is trying to save ourselves. To make ourselves right in God's eyes. To try to obey our way into salvation. So what I want to help you realize is that gospel amnesia typically ends in some kind of a legalism. And classically defined legalism is trying to kind of obey your way into God's grace. It's trying to earn your salvation. Now, you may be thinking when you hear legalism, you think of those Pharisees from the Gospels, those men who just stared down their noses in self-righteousness at those people who weren't as righteous as they were. That is a kind of legalism. But it's not the only kind of legalism. There's a second-class kind of legalism, and it's what... The Apostle Paul raises with these Galatians in Galatians 3.3. He says, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? This second class kind of legalism is this thinking that, well, what Jesus began in me, I'll finish off by my own obedience. The salvation that God has started in me by grace and His Spirit well, I will finish that off by my own obedience through the power of my flesh. That is just another kind of legalism. That's just another way of saying my salvation is dependent on me. Jesus may have saved me, but I keep myself saved. It's a salvation by works. And it's not the gospel of grace. The book of Galatians is all about the gospel 
of grace. How the gospel, Christ crucified, sets us free from start to finish, from sin and the law. The gospel is all about God's grace. It's all about Christ. The first people who received this letter, which is approaching 2,000 years old now, this letter to the Galatians, the first person, people that received this, well, they, they had forgotten who they were in Christ. They, they had forgotten what all of what God had done for them through Jesus Christ. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't connecting for them. And because they were confused about this, it made them ripe for some false teachers to come in. And they, there were false teachers that came in. And they were teaching these Gentile Christians in Galatia. They were saying, hey, it's okay that you started in Jesus, but you know what? You need to start start getting circumcised, and then you need to start obeying Jewish, Jewish dietary laws, no more pork for you, and then you really need to take off uh, from work for Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah so you can observe all the Jew Jewish holy days too. And so what they're saying is, hey, you know, I'm glad you believe in Jesus, but you really need to finish this off by obeying the law. And so Paul writes this letter to this confused church to set the gospel record straight. And so this morning, in the passage that we're looking at, here's what Paul's getting done. He's saying, if you're in Christ, you're not under the law. If you're in Christ, you're not under the law. Let, let's be clear, Paul writes, if you're, if you're in Christ... You're not under the law of Moses. And in order to convince us that we are in Christ and not under the law, Paul clarifies three realities in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. First, he's going to clear up this promise that was made to Abraham. And I got to tell you, there is some theological gold here. That's in verses 15 through 18. And then he's going to clarify the, the actual purpose of the Mosaic law, which heightens the promise. And then in verses 25 through 29, he's going to point us to the promised fulfilled. He wants us to be clear on who we are in Christ and that we're not under the law anymore. So this this passage, it's, it's all about God's promise to Abraham that's not fulfilled by the law, but fulfilled in Christ. And in it all, we're going to walk away saying, oh, that's who I am in Jesus Christ. So you may have come in here this morning, and you were suffering gospel amnesia, and you didn't even really know it. But my desire is for you to leave today fully aware of what God and Christ has done for you, so you leave this building with your head held up in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, you don't need to slump under the law. You hold your head up in all of God's blessings poured out on you in Christ. Ready to dig in? 
Let's look at this promise that was made in verses 15 through 18. Paul starts off by saying, to give a human example, and all of a sudden we're like, wait, hey, hold on a second, what's going on here? I feel like I'm entering into a conversation. Halfway through, and we are. So he's, he's saying, hey, let me give you a human example, and what he's going to kind of demonstrate here, he's been talking about verse, chapter 3, verse 8, and the scripture for, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, to Abraham saying, and, all, and you shall all the nations be blessed. And then in verse 14, it says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, I come to the Gentiles. So what he's going to say is, hey, let me help you understand by way of human example, how Gentiles, non-Jews, can become sons of Abraham. It's got everything to do with the promise. So, so to give a human example, he says, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So here's what's going on here. Paul is saying, we all get this general principle of kind of covenants and wills. And it applies to the relationship between Abraham's promise, God's promise to Abraham, and the law of Moses. And so here's the general principle. Let me, let me try to illustrate it. Let's say Jenny and I make a will. We have it ratified. It gets sealed by some important person. None of our children can now change that will however they see fit. You don't go back and change something that's been ratified. It's not like one of my children can go and do that because the will's been done. That's Paul's logic. He's saying there is, is a covenant, this will that's been done, and that whatever comes afterwards doesn't change it. So here are the two things he's going to describe. The covenant that's been ratified is God's promise to Abraham. It's irrevocable. It's unchanging. And there is some gold here. And then he's going to say the law which came afterwards... That doesn't change the nature of this promise God made to Abraham. So let's look at what this promise is. Verse 16. Now the promise is, there were multiple promises God made to Abraham about God blessing all the nations in Abraham and in one of his offspring. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring and then Paul does something really kind of nerdy. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul is not just getting techno-nerd because he's interested in these things. The whole argument depends on it. What he's saying is, based upon the grammar of the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 22, because offspring is not plural but singular, what this means is God made a promise to Abraham's one offspring to bless all the nations of the world. And what he means by that is to bring salvation, to pour out his grace to justify the nations by faith. 
He's going to, God is going to do this through one of Abraham's offspring. You ready for the eureka moment? Who is Christ? It, it's almost like, what? He's saying this, this one offspring that God promised all the blessings of Abraham is Christ. Here's what he's saying. That way back when that covenant was made, God made it to Abraham's offspring who was Christ. And so what Paul's saying is, way back in Genesis 12, this promise to bless all the nations of the world through the offspring who is Christ was ratified. And God ratified it by swearing by himself, 22-7. In other words, what we're being told here is from the very beginning, God had covenanted that he is going to save the nations through Christ. Sign, sealed, delivered. Done. That's in play. And that then raises the question, well, what about the law? And so that's where Paul goes. This is, this is what I mean. The law, in verse 17, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. This promise that God made to Abraham's offspring, who is Christ, is not made null and void by the coming of all 613 commands of Moses on Mount Sinai 430 years later. Those laws... Don't nullify this promise. Speaking of that promise in verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. That's how it was ratified. It's interesting. He uses the word inheritance here in verse 18. That's heir language. An heir, H-E-I-R, receives an inheritance. And the inheritance he's speaking of is all the blessings of God's salvation in the offspring Christ. That's the inheritance. That inheritance doesn't come by the law, obedience to the law. It comes, it was given by a promise. Okay. What's interesting about verse 18, but God gave, it's not that word gave, it's not the typical Greek word for gave. It's, it's an interesting Greek word. It, at its core, it has this word grace to it. God graced to Abraham the promise. This, this covenant he made to Abraham's offspring, Christ, to bless all the nations of the world is by grace, not by law. So what Paul is doing here is saying, hey, you've got to be clear on what this promise God made to Abraham really is. It's a promise to Christ. And that's unalterable by whatever comes after it. 
So Paul is clarifying for us the relationship between God's promise to Abraham and the law of Moses, because if you are in Christ, you're no longer under the law. Do you know what this means? When God promised to Abraham, to his offspring, to Christ, to bless all the nations of the world, he had you in mind. Way back then. He had you in mind. He wanted you. He's always wanted you. That's the first point. Paul wants to convince us, no, that this promise in Christ is not changed or altered at all by the law of Moses. Now, it raises a question, doesn't it? What's the point of the law then? Look at verse 19. Paul's like, I'm, hey, I'm a step ahead of you. Why then the law? What's the point of it? What's the purpose of it? Well, there's a couple things I want to draw out for you right now. The first thing I want you to see is the word until in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. You see it? Until, until what? Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And who is that? He's already told us. Christ. So what he's starting to say here is, why then the law? Well, it serves a temporary purpose until Christ comes. Until. You don't believe me? Look at verse 23. Now before faith came, it's talking, it's a shorthand for talking about the coming of Christ. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith, Jesus, would be revealed. Still don't buy it? Look at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law came after God's gospel promise. The gospel that was preached beforehand, the law came after as a temporary provision until Christ came. The Bible speaks of a plan of the fullness of time, this is Ephesians 1.10, that is realized in Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. So there's this until functioning of the law. It's, temp it's temporary provision until the coming of Christ, the offspring, the one who is promised. But now look at verse 19. We read, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Transgressions is just another religious way of talking about that part of our human hearts that seek to rebel against God, sin in us. So what Paul is saying here is the law doesn't eradicate the promise, but it was given, added for a temporary measure because of transgressions. And what he plays out in verses 23 and 24 and 25 is how the law functions 
And so in verse 22, we read, but the scripture, which is synonymous with the law in this context, but the scripture, it imprisoned everything under sin. So what the law does is it doesn't free us. The law imprisons us until Christ comes. It's the picture of a jailer. And we see it showing up again in verse 23. Now, before Christ came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith. This, all this blessing promised to Abraham's offspring in Christ, until that was revealed, we are imprisoned, held captive. We are under the jailer of the law. Let me out. Now, you've got to understand how this works. Because Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 7, the law isn't the bad guy. You're like, oh, wait, well, hold on a second. The law imprisons me. That makes the law bad. No, actually, the law was from God. Do you know why we get imprisoned by the law? The law exposes our sinfulness. It's our sin that gets imprisoned. Sin in us gets exposed by all 613 commands of the Mosaic law. It shows us again and again the sinfulness of our sin. In Romans 7, Paul says, I would have not known what covetousness really is until I came across the command not to covet. It shows us the sinfulness of our sin. It imprisons us. It enslaves us. It captives, holds us captive. It, 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 it makes you realize the more you know of God's law, the more you realize how far and how frequent you fall short of what God requires in His holiness. And the, and the more you realize, the more bars there are. More you realize there's no way I can, I can obey my way out of this. I'm condemned by my own attempts at obedience. And what the law does, it exposes us. We're lawbreakers. We're transgressors. We're rightfully held captive by the law. Because we're lawbreakers. But that's just one picture of how the law functions. There's another picture. It's in verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. When you hear the word guardian, you maybe think of, well, that's kind of prison guardish. It's kind of the jailer thing. Well, it's, it's not. What, what this guardian is, is is more like, if you're familiar with the legal system and caring for children, it's more like a guardian ad litem. Someone who is put, given responsibility for children. It's, it's like a glorified nanny or au pair. And so this guardian, according to the kind of first century Roman, Greco-Roman culture, this, back in the day, this, these, these guardians... They were typically men, and they were typically household slaves. So they were living within a household, and their job was to make sure the children of the household, of the master, they did their chores, 
They did their schoolwork. They minded their manners. And usually they were known for doing it with kind of an iron fist. And so what you have here is, is a picture of someone who is kind of a, a restrainer of wrongdoing and someone who is always minding you. And so these two pictures are of a jailer who imprisons us and of this kind of glorified au pair that is trying to restrain us to some degree, but keep an eye on us. And what Paul makes clear, especially with a guardian, is that they're temporary. Until. Until Christ comes. Until Christ comes, we're under the law, the jailer. Until Christ comes, we're under the supervision, the, the care of the guardian. But what becomes clear in verse 21 is this. It's what the law is incapable of doing. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? This, the blessing of God on Abraham's offspring, Christ? Is it, is it opposed to that? No, it's not opposed to that. But then he says, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law, but it can't. Paul's point is saying, none of these 613 laws of Moses, none of them, when obeyed or attempted to be obeyed, can give anybody spiritual life. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. The law is incapable of giving sinners spiritual life. It just racks up over time how I fail and fall short. That's what the law does really well. It exposes my sinfulness, and it keeps me from going over the deep end but it doesn't give me life. And so one is left saying, oh, I want life. The law is incapable of changing a stony heart into a fleshy heart that wants to obey God. The law doesn't do that. The Spirit of God does that. It's part of the new covenant that was accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why you see in verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that, the, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What the law does do is make you long for life, freedom, Deliverance from this prison. Get me out of this au pair oversight. Until Christ comes. If you are in Christ, you're not under this law anymore. Because Christ has come. And to that end, let me bring you now. We, 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 Paul has clarified for, for us, clarified the difference between this promise to Abraham that is realized in Christ. 
He's, he's pointed out now what the, what the law could never do and how the law can point us to Christ. That's the best it can do. But now he turns to promise fulfilled. In verses 25 through 29, he's saying, here's how this promise to Abraham in Christ has been fulfilled. And in this passage... There are just gems for your identity in Christ. Let me point you to several. If you're in Christ, you're not under the law. You are in the midst of God's blessing. In verse 25, we read this. Excuse me, verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The, f- the first reality of your gospel identity that Paul identifies is that you're justified by faith. That's who you are in Christ now. Here's what that means. To be clear- declared righteous by God, the judge of all things for all time. The moment a sinner puts their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, God makes a declaration. It's legal. It's irrevocable. It's binding always. And it defines you. That declaration is this, that based upon your faith in Jesus, all of your sin has been put on Christ in all of God's wrath, curse, for your sin has been poured out on Christ, so there's no more wrath forgiven of your sin. That's just part of it. God simultaneously thinks of all of Christ's righteousness, his 33 years of perfect, perfect living. He thinks of that righteousness as now credited to you. So in that one moment you believe God simultaneously says, based upon the finished work of Christ, this sinner is now completely forgiven of all of his sin and completely righteous in my sight because of the righteousness of Christ. That's who you are. That's what Christ has done. And your faith binds you to that. So the first thing you need to know about your identity is that you're justified. The second thing is in verse 26, but he goes, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It's interesting. He says, you're in Christ now. Christian, you're in Christ. To be out of Christ means you haven't exercised faith in Christ, which means all of God's wrath is still hanging over your head, and Christ's righteousness, instead of being imputed to you, actually exposes you. But to be in Christ means you've realized, oh, I need I need only what Christ offers, and I'm going to trust Him. And at that moment you trust Him, God thinks of you as being in Christ. Now, here's why that's significant. Do you remember back in, in 3.16 uh, that 
that the promise of Abraham to his offspring to bless with all of God's gracious blessing, saving blessing, that that is in the offspring, in Christ. So when God sees faith, he thinks of a sinner now in Christ and with now the recipient of all of the blessings in that offspring in Christ. And the way to get into Christ from being out of Christ is right there in verse 26. It's through faith. You don't earn your way in. You don't obey your, the law into Christ. The, the covenant, the promise doesn't come through the law. It's in Christ. So we've been justified, we're in Christ by faith, and then in verse 26, in the middle of that, we read, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You are all sons of God through faith. Now, if you're a lady in the room and you're a believer in Jesus, you're kind of like, well, that's interesting. It's kind of like when, when men read Ephesians 5 and we read about Okay, the church is the bride of Christ. It's kind of like, okay, I don't feel brighty. But he's getting out of relationship. And so when we read sons of God, sisters, you're sons of God. You're like, how is that? Don't think gender, think heir. Back in the first century, the firstborn son was the recipient of all the inheritance from the father. What Paul is saying is that everyone who's in Christ is a firstborn son of God, recipient of all the inheritance that's in Christ Jesus. You following me? So everyone in this room, regardless of your race, your culture, regardless of your economic standing, despite whether you're employed or not employed or partially employed, despite if you're a man or you're a woman, if you're old or young or somewhere in the middle, you know what? If you're in Christ, you're a son of God. You're an heir. Paul is wanting to emphasize that. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under Regarding now that Christ has come, you are in Christ, sons of God through faith. There's something else. Verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You might be thinking, well, okay, how does all this stuff work? How is it that I can be considered an heir of God in Christ Jesus, descendant of Abraham, when I'm a Gentile. And the Apostle Paul says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What baptism is, is a symbol. It is a symbol of being united to Christ. So when we baptize people in Lake Michigan, I'm standing out in the water with them, and I ask them, hey, have you put your faith in Jesus? Yes, I have. Are you going to follow him all the days of your life? Yes, I am. I'm like, well, based on your profession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I say, united with Christ in his death, raised with Christ to newness of life. When you believe 
in Christ and what he's done, your faith unites you to the finished work of Christ. You're united to his death so that you too are dead to sin and law. And you're united to his resurrection so that you too have a new life given to you so you can live for God. That's the baptism language. You're united to Christ. You're justified. You're in Christ. You're a son of God. You're united to Christ. And since you're united to Christ, baptized, you put on Christ. I am a white, middle-aged, middle-class husband and father. None of them is my ultimate identity because I've put on Christ. I'm united to Christ. So this put on language is like putting on clothing language. So you see somebody walk in here and they're wearing Packers regalia top to bottom. Do you know what they're saying? I identify myself with the Packers. Someone wearing Bears garb. I'm in. I'm wrapped up in the Bears. Or Badgers fans. I'm wrapped up with the Badgers. Or Ohio State fans. Point being, when you wrap yourself up with something, it's your identity. Our identity is Christ. So Christ informs my whiteness. Christ informs my middle-agedness. Christ informs my middle-classness. My husbanding and my parenting and my pastoring, none of those are my ultimate definition. Because I've put on Christ. Because I'm united to Him. Because I'm in Him. I'm His son. I've been justified. It doesn't end there. In verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you all are one in Christ. We are one in Christ with everyone who's been united to Christ. So, which means this. If Christ is what defines me most now, anyone who's been united to Christ is defined by Christ now. Which means not sameness in a church. It means unity in the midst of diversity in which we are saying what is most important and what unites us above and beyond all else is Christ in us. And then in verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring Heirs according to promise. He's bringing it all the way around, baby. If you belong to Christ, if you are Christ's by faith united to him, you put him on, you're one in him with everybody else, you are sons, you are in him, you're justified by faith in what he's done. If that's the case, you're his. You might have come in here this morning saying, I don't know who I belong to. God does. 
You belong to Christ. So much so, you've been so united to Christ, it blurs it. Because you get called Abraham's singular offspring too. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord Jesus. Okay. Let me just point out something. Verse 23. We're not under the law, imprisoned, until the faith would be revealed. That's a reference to Christ being revealed. Verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until... Christ came, second reference to Christ, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, third time, Christ is reference. 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, I believe that's the fourth time, have put on Christ. I think that's the fifth time. Verse 29, and if you are Christ, sixth time, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. It's all about Christ. It's all about being in the offspring of Abraham and whom God has promised all of his blessings to fall. It's all about Christ. In other words, your blessing is not in the law. It's in Christ. If you belong to Christ, you are not under the law. So this morning, we've seen Paul's case to convince us that we're in Christ. He sought to clarify for us the promise made. He sought to clarify us the role of the law, the promise heightened, and he sought to clarify the promise fulfilled in us in which is our identity, Christ. So if you came in here suffering some gospel amnesia, shake it off. You've just forgotten who you are in Christ. But God's word reminds us with clarity of who we are in Christ and all that he's done for us. You don't need to walk away slouching your head around under the law. You leave here holding your head up high because you're in Christ. And that's been secured by a promise that God has made himself. If you're realizing that you're not in Christ, stick around afterwards, come out, come talk to me. I'll help you understand how you can become a Christian. Let me pray for us. God in heaven, we thank you so much for Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. I pray that, God, you would take these truths and you would press them into my brothers and sisters and in me too, so that this week, all throughout this week, we remember who we are because of what Christ has done, and we live in that freedom. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.